A short time ago, in a galaxy not so far, far away, brave astronomers struggled to keep performing their outreach despite an evil force trying to take control. Princess Margot, Princess Margot, the Jodcast Studio is under attack. I know, Jobbot. Here, take this message and email it to someone who can come to our aid. And who are you calling a princess? Your game is over, princess. Rat Vader, I should have known. Only you could be so bold. I have come to stop the Jodcast. Never. I'd rather let my hair down than surrender to you. And stop calling me princess. Meanwhile, Margot's message has entered cyberspace, and guided by mysterious forces, it reaches the inbox of an unsuspecting young astronomer in the Netherlands. You have a mail message. Hmm. Hmm. The Jodwell Bank podcast in danger. Ooh, a princess. Come in. Oh, hello, Luke. Professor Obey. I need travel money to go to Jodwell Bank. What on earth for? We have much better telescopes here in the Netherlands. Why, even as we speak, the Dutch people are building the largest, most magnificent radio. Here, read this email. Ooh. A princess, Ratvada. So we meet again. We will both fly to the United Kingdom, Luke. You'll have to sell your car, though. So, Professor, who is Ratvada? He was once a student of mine, but he became obsessed with an evil force that is ripping the universe apart. It's called dark energy. What happened to him? He became a cosmologist, and now he seems to hold a serious grudge against the Jogcast. Oh, I can't bear to watch this any longer. The force is strong in you, Princess Margot. Don't call me princess. But soon you will surrender, and the Jogcast will be no more. Never. Ratvada, Professor Obey. Who are you? I am Luke Janse. I'm here to rescue you. It took you long enough. Ah! Oh, curse you, Ratvada! What have you done to him? I have retired him. <laughs> oh! Now, Luke, there is something that you must know. Yeah, I have a question myself, actually. Why are you called Vader? I mean, in the Dutch language, Vader means dad. Now, why would anyone call a sinister character such as yourself dad? Just doesn't make sense. I- I'm sorry. What were you going to tell me? Ah, uh, never mind. Then let me pass, so I can broadcast the next episode of the Jotcast. Never. You have betrayed all cosmologists by revealing the power of the dark energy to ordinary muggles, and for that. I will stop this episode of the Jodcast. The possibility of that is approximately three thousand seven hundred and twenty to one. Never tell me the art. You have learned much, young one. You'll find I'm full of surprises. The Jodcast, May the fourth be with. Megan Argo, David Alt, Adam Avison, Jen Gupta, Kerry Hebden, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Roy Smits, Dan Dan Zoo, and Neil Young. 
The Jodcast, May issue. Hello and welcome to the May issue of The Jodcast. And as you may have just heard, we are jam-packed with presenters. Uh, So, without repeating all of the names, we're going to introduce two new presenters, brand new presenters to The Jodcast. So, please welcome Jen Gupta and Neil Young. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, welcome to The Jodcast. And, of course, we're also joined by Roy and Stuart, and even from right across the world, we've got Megan Argo from Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello, everyone. Now, unfortunately, uh, this is... Hot on the heels of uh, Nick's last show last month, it's Roy's last show as well. Yes, it is. So, Roy, why are you leaving? I'm leaving because my job in Manchester is finished. So I'm going back to the Netherlands. And uh, hopefully you've got a new job in the Netherlands. I do. I continue working in the Netherlands in astronomy, and I will try to contribute to the Jotcast as much as I can. So I'll have a, a Netherlands correspondent. Exactly. It's just an expansion of the Jotcast. What we really need now is someone to go up into space, and then we'll have <laughs> conquered every single continent, and also into the low Earth orbit as well. So, coming up on this issue, we've got your feedback, we've got all of the news from Genam, and what that actually is, and of course the night sky with Ian Morrison. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month... Mystery objects spotted at the dawn of galaxy formation. Complex organic molecules near the galactic centre. And how asteroids get a suntan. A team of astronomers have observed a mysterious object in the early universe, which could be one of the earliest ancestors of a forming galaxy ever detected. The object is almost 13 billion light-years away, when the universe was only 6% of its current age and is a type of object known as a Lyman Alpha emitter. As the universe expanded after the Big Bang, it slowly cooled, eventually allowing gas to form, as the protons and electrons in the hot primordial plasma combined to form hydrogen atoms. Galaxies started to form when this neutral, opaque gas began to collapse under gravity, forming stars which ionised the surrounding gas, making the universe transparent in what is known as the Epoch of Reionisation. This occurred between about 150 million and 1 billion years after the Big Bang. This mysterious object, dubbed Himiko by its discoverers, is a giant blob of hydrogen gas 55,000 light-years across, roughly the radius of our own Milky Way. It formed when the universe was a mere 800 million years old. Finding such a large object so far back in time was unexpected, since it is thought that small objects formed first, and then merged to create larger objects over time. Named after a particular spectral signature of hydrogen, many smaller examples of these Lyman-alpha emitters are known, although most exist at a time when the universe was between 2 and 3 billion years old. Himiko is unique in other ways too. It is both the brightest and largest Lyman-alpha object yet discovered. Its character is something of a mystery, however, In a paper accepted for publication in the Astrophysical Journal, the authors make several suggestions based on their observations so far, including gas ionised by a hidden supermassive black hole, clouds of ionised hydrogen in a very early galaxy, gas falling onto a massive dark halo object generating a massive starburst, a merger of giant gas clouds, 
or outflying gas from a starburst or merger. With the data currently available, it is not yet clear which of these suggestions is correct, but the researchers point out that observations with the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, when it is complete, should narrow down the possibilities by characterizing the dust and molecular gas properties of the object. Astronomers using a telescope in Spain have detected two of the most complex molecules ever found in interstellar space, in a region known as Sagittarius B2, close to the galactic center. While hydrogen accounts for approximately three-quarters of the visible matter in the universe, many heavier elements are also present. Under the right conditions, these elements can form bonds, creating a variety of different molecules. Like atoms, molecules emit electromagnetic radiation at very specific frequencies, resulting in a characteristic fingerprint of lines in the spectrum of an astronomical object. Detecting complex molecules in space involves searching for these fingerprints and trying to disentangle overlapping lines from different molecules. So far, more than 150 different molecules have been detected, either in the interstellar medium or around stars. These include various organic molecules, those containing carbon atoms, although those found to date are much simpler than the amino acids which are the building blocks of life here on Earth. Astronomers studying the chemistry of the Sagittarius B2 region have previously found numerous different large molecules, including alcohols, aldehydes and acids. The cloud itself is a hot, dense ball of gas around a luminous young star in a known star-forming region located approximately 100 parsecs from the galactic centre. The new study, led by Arnold Beloche at the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Germany and published in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, used the RM30 meter telescope on Pico Valletta in Spain to obtain sensitive spectra of the region. When the team analysed their data, they discovered the spectral signatures of ethyl formate and N-propyl cyanide, two of the most complex molecules discovered in space so far. Some chemicals form by the collision of particles in a gas cloud, but astrochemical models suggest that more complex molecules can form on dust grains from individual atoms and simple molecules reacting together. Larger, more complex molecules are then formed by the addition of further simple molecules to the chain. While the simplest amino acid, glycine, has not yet been detected in space, its size and complexity is similar to ethyl formate and N-propyl cyanide, suggesting that future surveys, with more sensitive instruments, could detect amino acids. When two asteroids collide, they create a family of fragments with newly exposed surfaces. As these fragments age, they become redder in colour, but the actual processes and the timescales over which they act have been heavily debated. A team of researchers, led by Pierre Vernazza of the European Space Agency, have observed asteroids from different groups, with various ages and compositions, and concluded that the ageing process is far more rapid than previously thought. The research, published in Nature during April, not only shows that asteroid surfaces age and redden in less than one million years, but that the solar wind is the most likely cause of this weathering. While human skin is damaged over time by repeated exposure to the sun's ultraviolet light, it is the highly energetic particles in the solar wind which damage the outer layers of an asteroid, destroying the molecules and crystals at the surface and forming a thin crust of material with distinctive properties. By studying different families of asteroids, 
the team found that the composition of an asteroid is an important factor in determining how red its surface becomes. After the initial rapid reddening during the first million years, the surface ages more slowly, with the colour determined more by composition than by age. The research also showed that collisions alone cannot account for the high proportion of fresh-looking surfaces seen on near-Earth asteroids. Roughly 10% of one kilometer sized near-Earth objects appear to have unreddened surfaces. Instead, they suggest that these may be the result of planetary encounters, where tidal shaking could expose fresh, unaltered material. The authors point out that if this is the case, then a comparison of the colours of near-Earth asteroids compared to similar asteroids in the main asteroid belt should show a greater abundance of redder objects away from the Earth than in the main belt. And finally, the discovery of the lightest exoplanet found so far was announced at the Joint European and National Astronomy Meeting at the University of Hertfordshire on the 21st of April. This is the fourth planet discovered in the Gliese 581 system, orbiting a star located 20.5 light-years away in the constellation Libra. The planet, known as Gliese 581e, has a mass just 1.9 times that of Earth, and orbits its parent star in just 3.15 days. The team, led by Michael Mayer of Geneva Observatory, have been searching for planets using the HARPS spectrograph on ESO's 3.6-metre telescope at La Silla in Chile for more than four years. The same study found that one of their previous planetary discoveries is located within the habitable zone of Gliese 581, a low-mass red dwarf star. While the mass of this planet means it is unlikely to be a rocky Earth-like planet, its location in the habitable zone means there could be liquid water on its surface. The results of the study have been submitted for publication in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics. Thanks for that, Megan, and it's good to hear news of more places that the Jodcast can possibly broadcast to. Two Earth-mass planets? Yeah, gotta go for them. Right, now, the news of that was mentioned at Genam, and uh, it's over now to the Jodcast juniors to tell us exactly what Genam is. What is it, guys? Okay, so uh, during the European Week of Space Science, or Astronomy and Space Science, um, there was held the uh, Joint European National Astronomy Meeting at the University of Hertfordshire in Hartfield. And uh, basically this comprised of uh, a full review of current astrophysics and um, all the research which is going on, like press releases about exoplanets. To The universe smelling of raspberries, I think, was one of the highlights. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and and rum. tasting like rum. And yeah. tasting like rum. You and the other Jodcast juniors... Um, have done a great job of getting interviews with various astronomers who were there. Thank you. It did involve running after a few of them. Yeah. And we harassed them with a microphone saying, interview me please, can I interview you? I did actually run after one person. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you also to the astronomers who were chased um, at Genam um, for allowing us to chase them and be interviewed. Okay, so let's go to the first interviews. We've been joined by Professor Andy Fabian, President of the Royal Astronomical Society. Could you start by explaining a little bit about these National Astronomy Meetings and why they're so important to the community? Okay, well, um, they started in the 1990s, um, and uh, whilst the RAS 
has the overall responsibility for them. They pass around different universities each year and they provide a focus and a means for everybody to come together. And what's particularly noticeable is how many young people come along. And uh, this time there's nearly 1,100 people at NAM because it's also done jointly with the European Astronomical Society. And it's about two-thirds from the UK, one-third from outside. So when was the last time this joint European meeting was held in the UK? I understand it was about 15 years ago, a long time ago. So uh, this is almost new for us and uh, it's working very well. I think the quality of the talks is very high. Lots of interesting parallel sessions, lots of interesting things going on, lots of people talking to each other, which I think is very good. Is there any significance with the location this year um, at Harperture? Um, I think they're doing a great job. As for the significance of the location, I think it's perhaps rather central. It's easy to get to, but uh, we'll see with Glasgow next year. Most members of the Royal Astronomical Society are professional astronomers, but last year the previous president mentioned that a friend scheme might be implemented for members of the public to join. Is this something that's happened? Yes, it's called Friends of the RAS. I would, before going on, actually say that I think there's, it's not a thousand, but maybe 600 of our members are actually amateur astronomers. So whilst we really want the RAS to be the Society for Professional Astronomers, it's possible for keen amateurs to join the RAS. Not all people who are interested in astronomy want to pay the dues to become a fellow of the RAS, but uh, that's why we've introduced the Friends, which is a way of getting connected with it. And we would like that to spread because it's something that lots of people are interested in and to have a way in which they can get to read and find out what's going on at first hand, even perhaps organise events, local events around the country, could be very, very good. With there being over a thousand attendants this year, has there been any difficulties with the actual organisation of the event? I think you're going to have to ask the people who organised it. I, as an outsider, are coming into it. I think it's done, they've done a great job. Could you share some of your highlights from this meeting with us? Things that you're looking forward to or maybe talks that you've been to so far? Well, I, I particularly enjoyed listening to Michelle Mayor talk about extrasolar planets, the way in which that uh, whilst many of the ones found so far have a mass of around a thousand times the mass of the Earth, namely Jupiter mass, they're now finding a peak uh, emerging at around ten times the mass of the Earth and possibly indicating there are many, many planets the mass of the Earth. I think that's really exciting. There's been very interesting talks. I, I've been going to the X-ray astronomy sessions and they've been very good. And uh, there was a very nice talk as well this morning about galaxies at Redshift 2. I think there's lots of exciting things going on with lots of missions, uh, space missions, lots of large telescopes. Tim Desieu from the European Southern Observatory was telling us about how, you know, they're going to build a 42 metre diameter optical telescope. Um, I'm sure from Jodrell, you know about E-Merlin coming online next month. I believe it's slightly delayed, but Herschel and Planck are being launched. There's going to be the Hubble servicing mission. It's fantastic time to be an astronomer. With funding cuts to many projects and in the current economic crisis, do you think astronomers in the UK still have a bright future ahead of them? I think from the science point of view, it's very good to be an astronomer. From the point of view of funding, we're actually in a very difficult situation. And let's see what happens on Thursday when we get to talk with um, the people from the Science and Technology Facilities Council who provide the funding, and we'll see what happens there. There's going to be a community discussion that I have to chair where Keith Mason, the chief executive, is going to answer questions from our community. But I would remind you that we had the science minister, Lord Drayson, 
to open the NAM, the JNAM, and he had lots of very nice positive things to say about us as a community, also about astronomy, the way it inspires uh, young people, people of all ages, to have an interest in science and do science. I think if we're going to make a scientifically literate society, which is what governments aim to do, astronomy plays a big role in that. Indeed, I think we all agree on that one. Thank you for taking the time out to talk to us. We've been joined by Dr Jane Greaves from the University of St Andrews. She's been here talking about one of the E. Merlin legacy projects that she's the principal investigator of. Thank you for taking time to talk to us. Okay, you're welcome. So could we start off by just explaining a little bit about the project and what you're doing with it? Okay, yeah. Well, the project's called PEBBLES, which stands for Planet Earth Building Blocks, a legacy E-Merlin survey. But basically, it is about pebbles. Um, the idea is to look for orbiting rocks around very young stars. So these are essentially the dust grains that we know exist in the interstellar medium and are part of the um, process of the star forming and then um, planets forming around it. But instead of the really small dust grains you get in interstellar space, these are enormous. These are like maybe 10 centimetres in size. And we suddenly realised the radio regime is the actual way you can detect these just because they're little radiating rocks. Um, so it's a very new technique that we're trying to exploit in the survey. OK, and I'm sure some of our regular listeners will remember that I think Nick talked to you this time last year at NAM. Uh, so last year, I think you were reporting the first discovery of a protoplanet forming. Am I right in saying that it's about it was a Jupiter-sized planet? Um, it's actually about 10 times as massive as Jupiter. Um, it's a kind of super Jupiter, and it's um, a long way out from its parent star, so it's not that like Jupiter. It's also extremely young, so at the state we see it at the moment, it's basically a very large cloud of rocks and gas and stuff. But yes, it will be a good planet in the future. So in a year, you've gone from one discovery to having an entire E. Merlin project on this. It's quite, quite impressive. Um, how many of these protoplanets have you found now? Um, basically still one. <laughs> so yes, this is a great leap of faith and we're very glad that the um, emailing committee decided to award us some time. And we've got actually prototype time to prove that this very new technique is possible. Essentially the first discovery of like 10 centimetre sized dust grains was made by an American astronomer, David Wilner, um, only in 2005. And we're trying to move very rapidly from realising that you can actually observe pebbles in space to a fully blown survey. But because the email in opportunity came up, we thought we'd go for it and a whole team of people have got involved. So as you say, it started with the protoplanet very much last year. We were actually looking for the pebbles at that point and then we like lifted our eyes a bit further out in the image and realised there wasn't just this really interesting swarm of pebbles, but there was the actual protoplanet there. So that's been a big stimulus for saying, if we can look at some other systems, um, maybe we can find enough protoplanets. And we're going to look at about 20 young stars with massive disks of orbiting material. So maybe if we look around these 20 stars, we can find 20 planetary systems forming. And that would be amazing for being able to say, well, how do they form? When does it happen? What's the physics going on? Do you always get planets or any very special circumstances? That kind of thing. And is this technique just sensitive to massive planets, Jupiter and above? Or do you think you'll be able to find Earth-sized planets forming? Um, we're sensitive as actual objects to um, reasonably massive planets, to be honest. But what one of the things that's really new about um, using e-Merlin that nobody's been able to do before is that the resolution is very high because the dishes are spread so far across the UK. Although... Um, 
by the standards of planet formation models, it's a pretty crude image. We can have um, different telescope resolution elements looking at different parts of the system. So we can detect if there's a few Earth masses of dust at around the Earth's orbit, we should just be able to detect that and resolve it um, as a separate position in the image from where Jupiter might be forming, for example. So it's the first time we'll be able to get some ideas of if the raw materials for forming an Earth are there in the Earth's orbit. Um, so it's really exciting. And a lot of the talks from E. Merlin have been the pathway to the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array Telescope. Do you think that this is something that can be developed for the SKA in future? We really hope so, yeah. I mean, the SKA will have fantastic resolution. Um, what we can do with E. Merlin is, is really exciting, but um, if we can get a, few, a factor of a few more in angular resolution on the sky and obviously a great leap in sensitivity with the SKA, I think we could actually detect one Earth mass of stuff forming. And, you know, everybody's been wanting to detect an Earth around a sun-like star, maybe, or a habitable Earth. And suddenly we've realised that that might be quite a long way off in terms of space technology and so on. But to detect an Earth actually forming is another way of addressing the whole problem. And it might be something we could do within, you know, 10 or 15 years. So it'd be really spectacular. So you uh, are finding pebble-sized um, dust particles. And what is the next stage up from there? What What is it you can find after that? And... If it's something huge, why is different so big? Well, um, the radio emission, you're basically sensitive to um, wavelengths that are emitted at about the size of the emitting particle. So we'd really like to be able to detect, you know, like mountains in space, say very large <laughs> rocks um, that are going to form into planets and their emission. But unfortunately, it turns out that you're locking a lot of mass up into a body that doesn't emit very efficiently. So there's relatively little surface area for the amount of stuff you've stuffed into it. Um, so I think probably detecting things, we could go up to maybe about a metre size um, with, say, 20 centimetre observations with the SKA in the future. But then you have this kind of gap where things disappear and um, you go from looking from the light these particles emit and there's this whole missing space and then suddenly you're up at planet-sized bodies and you're looking for the gravity effects of those on their parent star for example so there is there is a limit to what we can do and the pebble-sized um, dust particles that you're finding are they guaranteed to, to go on and, and build planets or could they just stay as they are? It's a very interesting question that we're hoping to do with the survey because we may just find these disks are happy and stable and don't form lumps in them at all. I mean, it'd be more exciting if we image planets forming, but we can only find out really by doing it. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank, thank you. you. So we're here with Yuri van Leeuwen from Astron, which is based in Dwingelo. Now, would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about your uh, research, please? Sure. So, uh, like you said, I'm at Dwingelo. So, Dwingelo is where most people work who are trying to get uh, low far off the ground. The radio pulsar. Oh, did I say radio pulsar? I mean radio telescope. It does more things than just radio pulsars. Lots of EOR stuff, H1 galaxies, surveys, the works. But a lot of pulsar uh, stuff we're hoping to do with that too. Could you explain to listeners what a pulsar actually is? Sure. So pulsars are, for stars, really small, dense stars. Newton stars, we call them as well. So they're made when really massive stars in a supernova event explode, and then their cores collapse to this really small, dense star that's about a million times as heavy as the Earth, um, but only 10 kilometers across. They can spin very rapidly. They make really bright radio emission, and that's what we pick up with radio telescopes as pulsars. So why are they useful? Why do we find them interesting? So they're useful if you want to think about the fundamental characteristics of matter. So these are much denser than anything you could make in any lab on the Earth. So they're really one of our few ways of figuring out what 
all the stuff that we're made out of behaves like under extreme pressures. Only neutron star cores can uh, can produce pressures like those. So that's an interesting thing if you want to just figure out what matter behaves like. One of the main strengths of that telescope is going to be one of the biggest ones in the world. Is going to be uh, looking for new radio pulsars in the northern hemisphere. So at the moment, focusing mostly on surveys, trying to find new interesting systems, but also getting a better overview of what the whole radio pulsar Newton star population is like. So that's that's the main thing at the moment. How do you see the outlook for uh, pulsar astronomy? Boy. <laughs> Well, bright, I guess, radio bright. So I just talked about the square kilometer array, a really large telescope that we're hoping to build in uh, maybe 15 years from now in the south. And on shorter terms, we have a few interesting instruments coming online. If you look back at the last 30 years of pulsar research, a lot of it at Jodwell 2 is, you can see that main discoveries were uh, actually uh, driven by uh, instrument innovation. So I do see that these new instruments are going to enable us to do new science that we don't really understand at the moment or, or expect at the moment. But... I think that's what the future is going to be like. Some unexpected stuff, hopefully, anyway. So the Centre of Operation for LOFAR is based in Dwinkle, that's correct. Can you tell me something about the uh, key science projects or um, what we actually expect from LOFAR in the next few years? Yeah, sure. It was really originally uh, designed as a surveys instrument for galactic and uh, epoch of reionization work. There's a few more key science projects by now that are hoping to, uh, in parallel with those original science projects, do some neat stuff. So we have radio transient surveys of the radio sky, so looking what goes boom in the night in the radio from minutes to years timescales. We have radio pulsar research that I'm mostly focusing on, but also looking at local H1, seeing what gas dynamics is like in galaxies that are close to us. The big focus is still on trying to detect the epoch of reionization signal far out. That would be really neat if LOFAR was able to do that. What observation time do we expect pulsars to be allocated? So I guess we're expecting to get some time, like uh, maybe 10% or so, for really direct observation time. So with direct observation time, I hear mean that we're able, that we are the ones choosing which direction LOFAR points in. Of course, with a software telescope like LOFAR, you could point in many directions at the same time. So I think most of our observing time is actually going to be in parallel with other projects for the radio pulsar surveys that we're aiming to do, it doesn't always matter which way we're looking at, just as long as we're seeing some interesting part of the sky. So we'll just piggyback on, on whatever other uh, science projects are going on. So I think in total we'll have quite a lot of on-sky time. Not all of it, very little of it is going to just be only pulsars. We'll be sharing with many other people. That's, I think, one of the revolutionary aspects of this uh, software telescope that LOFAR is going to be. Thank you very much for your time. This is Adam Avison reporting for the Jogcast, and I'm here with Chris Ben, the Head of Astronomy for the ING. Hi Chris. Hi Adam. Uh, would you care to tell us a bit about what goes on at the ING? Yeah, the ING is the Isaac Newton Group, which is a strange name. It sounds like a bank. It's actually an <laughs> observatory. And we have a four metre telescope and a two and a half metre and a one metre at the peak of the island of La Palma in the Canary Islands. It's a very beautiful island and it has fantastic observing conditions very dark skies at night because not many people live on the island and the what we call the seeing the turbulence of the atmosphere which uh, disrupts our view of the stars it's, it's very good on La Palma it's a very good quality skies in fact the skies on La Palma are almost as good sometimes better than those in uh, in Chile and in Hawaii where the other major observatories are so it's a very very good site and we have these three telescopes and it's run as a UK Dutch Spanish collaboration so each of these countries send their astronomers out to observe and they each contribute a fraction of the, the financial cost of the observatory. Could you tell us a bit about the, the current big projects that are going on at the telescopes at the moment? 
Well, actually, one of the special things about La Palma is that uh, most of the projects are fairly small because we cater for a very broad community of observers. So typically uh, on the 4-meter telescope, which is the William Herschel telescope, astronomers come out for two or three days at a time. They have two or three nights allocated on the telescope. And they may come out in teams of one, two or three people. They stay there for those nights. And in, in those few nights at a 4-meter telescope, it's enough to do a, a major observing project. For example, uh, one recent highlight from the WHT is the observation of uh, a planet beyond the Earth, an exoplanet, and passing behind its host star. So this is what we call a secondary transit of a planet, where instead of the planet going in front of the star and reducing the light, it goes behind the star, and then there's a very small dip in the light output because the star is hiding the planet. And this means that, in effect, you've, you've detected the the near-infrared photons from the planet. And this is a very exciting step, because uh, as soon as you can actually detect photons from an exoplanet, it means you can start doing spectroscopy of the atmosphere of the planet and discover what, what kind of things are in the planet's atmosphere. Uh, so during your talk on, on Monday, you, you mentioned that coming to observatories soon is the, uh, the HARPS. Uh, is it NEF, New Earth? Yeah, it's called HARPS, uh, NEF. NEF stands for New Earth's Facility. I forget what HARP stands for. H is for Harvard, because it's built by Harvard. It's an upgraded copy of a very powerful spectrograph, which currently exists in the Southern Hemisphere, on one of the telescopes in Chile. And the aim of this spectrograph is to measure radial velocities of objects with very high precision. The, the idea being to see the effect of Earth-sized planets orbiting distant stars, because when, they, when the planet orbits the star, it causes a slight wobble in the velocity of that star. So, that, so the aim of this spectrograph is to be able to detect these uh, very small planets, Earth-sized planets around stars. And this particular project is complementing the, the recent launch of a spacecraft called Kepler. And what Kepler will do is to find stars which have occasional eclipses in the light curves when, the, when a planet passes in front of the star. So there's a very small dip in the light curve of the planet. And then those, those candidate stars for exoplanets can be examined with this very high resolution spectrograph to confirm that they really are planets going around stars and the goal is to find planets which are around Earth-sized. So this is a very exciting development of the WHT. It's a completely new spectrograph. Will these uh, exoplanets be at close distances to their uh, parent stars or uh, in the so-called habitable zone where the Earth is in our solar system? Yes, I, sh- I should have said that is the, that's the main goal, to find a uh, an Earth-sized planet, not only uh, orbiting at any distance around a star, but one that's actually in the habitable zone. In other words, the zone around a star where the temperature is suitable for liquid water to exist. And liquid water is presumed to be a requisite for life on any, any planet. Are there any further developments at the telescopes on La Palma? Well, one recent development on the William Herschel telescope is that we've built a laser guide star for the adaptive optic system. Uh, laser guide stars, an artificial star created by shining a very powerful laser into the sky. And, and the idea behind this is to provide a reference for our adaptive optic system. And the, the adaptive optic system is something which is designed to take out the, the twinkling of stars, basically. Um, when you look at the star through the atmosphere, it's a bit like looking down at the bottom of a swimming pool through the surface of the water. And the bottom of the pool is, uh, is blurred by the rippling of the water. And something similar happens with stars. And that limits our ability to detect very faint stars because they're kind of smeared out by the atmosphere. 
This is what we call seeing. One way of taking this out is with a technique called adaptive optics, whereby we put in, in the light path of the inside the telescope, we put a, a deformable mirror which changes shape up to around 100 times a second in order to counteract this, this blurring caused by the atmosphere. And to do that, we need a reference star to tell us what the wavefront is doing at any particular moment. Although there are a few bright stars around the sky, which are naturally bright enough to do this, for most objects on the sky, like 99% of the sky, you need to put your own artificial star. And this is why we built a laser guide star. And this was commissioned last year, and it's now in regular use at the telescope. So this is a major instrumental development, and it means that we can do adaptive optics pretty much anywhere on the northern sky of the William Herschel Telescope. Well, lots of exciting science to be coming out of the William Herschel Telescope in the coming years. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Adam. So I'm here with Professor René Aldmeyer from the University of Leeds during the second poster session of the conference. First of all, thank you for taking the time out to speak to me. No problem. And, yeah, could you tell me a little bit about your research, please? Of course I can. Part of my job is uh, to try to do some astronomical research. Uh, my speciality is actually looking at stars and see how they form. Actually, stars get born, just like you and me, a little bit differently, though. And not looking at ordinary stars like our own sun, although it's actually our special one because it's giving us uh, all the heat that we need to live, but we're looking at very, very massive stars. And these are very rare, but they're very, very energetic. And perhaps you've heard of them. They enter life, not with a whisper, but with a big bang. They go supernova. What we don't know about these stars, there are many things we don't know, but very crucial is we don't know how they were born. We don't know how they form, which is uh, very strange because we, of course, know that they're there. We know they explode and all the other things they do for us. But how they form is a big problem. And one of the reasons it's a big problem is that they live very, very fast. Our own star, the Sun, has been around for about 5 billion years. And we'll probably have another 5 billion years to go, so time enough to finish the A-levels. Uh, but these massive stars, they live very fast and die very young. Mm -hmm. And when they form, it goes even quicker. So it is very hard to find a massive star. It's just like a needle in a haystack. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to find all the young stars in our own galaxy. And we hope to find perhaps even 500 of those. Mm -hmm. and so how would we actually go about doing that? That's a very, very good question. Actually, these stars are invisible when they're young because they're being born in the cradle, the cradles of the stars, and these are very dusty, very opaque. Light cannot go through it, but the stars can actually heat up the dust a little bit and let them glow in the infrared, just like the night goggles of a soldier. Yeah. Um, and we can look at these stars in the infrared, and we actually looked at a survey in the infrared of the night sky, and out of 300,000 stars, we selected 2,000 for further study and looked in very great detail how they are what they do, and whether they're young or not. So uh, what was the survey called? We have called it RMS, which is a very boring title, of course. It means red, for these stars are red, MSX. That's the name of the military satellite that actually did it. They wanted to have a background for some rocket shooting that were being shot at the Americans. And uh, the S stands for survey. Why are uh, finding these sort of stars important? Why do you want to look at these? Yeah, that's a very good question uh, indeed. Uh, yeah, of course we'd like to know what's going on, but why do we want to know of particularly those type of stars? Well, massive stars, there are not very many of them, but they do a lot for us. They inject a lot of energy into the interstellar medium, and if a supernova explodes, all the materials that both you and me are made of, the carbon, the iron, the calcium and whatnot, are being produced in the supernova. So they're very important to us, and in order to understand why we are here, we have to understand where the material that we are made of came from. Mm -hmm. 
So these are the underlying thoughts of trying to get a full picture about the universe. So should we actually be looking out for some future work with your name on the title? Always, yeah, why not? Type in Outmeyer and you'll find all the results that we found. Thank you very much. Thank you. Today we're having Linda Tacconi from Max Planck Institute for Exoterrestrial Physics in Germany to tell us about star-forming galaxies in the distant universe. Hello, Linda. Welcome to Jutcast. Thank you very much for having me. You work on these star-forming galaxies at high redshift, which means in the far universe. Why are we interested in these galaxies? What are they? Are they very different from nearby star-forming galaxies? These are galaxies. What we want to know how galaxies like our own Milky Way formed, and so we're studying galaxies when the universe was 20% of its current age. And so these galaxies are baby galaxies in a way. So they're just in the process of forming most of their stars. Although they already have formed stars even even earlier, there are already some old stars in these galaxies. But we're trying to witness them when they're doing the bulk of their formation. They're very different from local、uh, star-forming galaxies, and what we think is they have a, a lot more cold, cold gas, which is the stuff from which stars are forming. And so, in a local galaxy, we have maybe 10% of the baryonic mass is in cold gas, but in high-redshift galaxies, it can be up to a half. This makes the galaxy look very different, and the physics of the galaxy is very different from what it is in the local universe. How do you know they have a lot more cold gas compared with galaxies nearby? How do you study these systems? For example, how do you measure the gas? There are two ways. We're detecting the gas in two ways. In、um, some of the systems, we're detecting hot ionized gas, where we see emission lines from hydrogen in the rest frame optical band that are redshifted into the near infrared, and we use very sensitive instruments on the ESO very large telescope on Paranal in Chile, an instrument called Symphony, which allows us to map, make a two-dimensional image of the galaxy, and then also get information about the motions in the galaxy along a third axis. So we have a, a data cube with the integral field spectroscopy, that has only been possible now for about four years. So this is a very new technique. But then we're also looking at the cold gas because that's also an interesting component because that's the the building blocks for the stars. And there we use、uh, millimeter interferometry from Jodrell Bank. You you know a lot about interferometry, <laughs> and we are using currently、uh, an interferometer which is based in the French Alps called the Plateau de Bure. And there we we observe、um, rotational emission from molecules. And the molecule that we look at is carbon monoxide. It's a very simple molecule. And it's the brightest emission that we can see from a very distant galaxy, and this is one of the main goals of the Alma project, where people will try to measure gas masses in high redshift galaxies routinely. We are now only able to do it for a few dozen systems.、Um, we're using the millimeter interferometry to observe the cold gas, and the tracer we use. Is the carbon monoxide line which emits in the millimeter band? We have a we know a relationship from observing galaxies locally between the amount of carbon monoxide you see and the total amount of molecular gas that there is, and we apply that relationship then to measure the gas mass. But that we can only do in a few systems because、uh, these systems are very far away and it's very hard to observe them. 
So for most of the other systems, we need to apply a relationship that, again, has been determined for local universe galaxies, where we know that for star-forming galaxies, there's a very nice relationship between how many stars a galaxy forms and its gas mass, its gas density. And we apply, so we can determine the star formation rates through our optical emission lines. We can collect the light from the stars and turn that back into a rate. And then we apply the same relationship and then infer a gas mass. And in comparing the two methods, the direct observing method and just applying a, a re- empirical relationship that we determined locally, they're actually not too bad. They're not too different. So that's how I think we are making some progress in measuring gas masses and high gas fractions. A widely accepted picture about the universe is that it has experienced a fierce merging history that galaxies collide with each other when the density of the universe was high in the earlier times. How do these distant star-forming galaxies fit into such a merging picture? Well, this was a, an interesting point because we were surprised at first to find that a lot of the galaxies we're studying don't show evidence for having been through mergers. Some of them, some of them do, but of the ones we've looked at so far, about more than, more than half seem to be forming without having to merge together with other galaxies. There is another population of galaxies at high redshift called red dead elliptical galaxies. They are sort of much evolved systems in terms of star forming. Is there any evolution link between them and these star forming galaxies you're talking about? We believe that there is a trend. We believe that in the, the galaxies which are going through major mergers, so this, what we call the submillimeter galaxies, these are bright, very luminous, dusty galaxies, which are probably two massive galaxies merging together. In this case, they have properties, both their densities and their sizes are very similar to the evolved galaxies also at high redshift. Um, and so we do see, a, we think there's a link between those two populations and such that the lifetime of this bright merging starburst, so-called starburst phase that the submillimeter galaxies are going through is very short. In this time, they formed stars at a rate of about a thousand what we call solar masses, masses of the sun per year. This is extraordinary amount of, of stars to form at once. And so they do this for about a hundred million years. And in that process, they can form enough stars to look, let it, once you let that evolve for a billion, two billion years, then they start to look more like these red elliptical galaxies. So in that case, all the star formation stop in those systems. I don't know if all of the star formation stop, but but certainly the bulk of the star formation. They either the galaxies run out of gas because they form so many stars, or what's left is blown out by the formation of the massive stars. They evolve very quickly, and then they go and become supernovae, and they can blow gas out of the galaxy. Or also,、uh, at the same time these ga- galaxies are gr- are being formed, the central black holes also are being formed. And when they start accreting material, they also get very, very active, and they can form a giant wind, which we call、uh, feedback, which then will blow the gas then out of the galaxy as well. So we don't know what shuts the process off. Is it if it's just they run out of stuff to form more stars, or if the what's left is simply heated up to high temperatures and then blown out of the galaxy? Thank you very much, Linda, for joining us. Wish you all the best for your research. Thank you very much for having me.
So I'm here with Andrew Levan from the University of Warwick, and he's done quite a bit of research on short gamma ray bursts. So could you tell me, first of all, a little bit about short gamma ray bursts, so what they are, where they come from? Okay, so gamma ray bursts are a type of gamma ray burst which comprise about 25% of the population that we see. And gamma ray bursts were originally discovered in the 1960s by satellites designed to monitor actually a nuclear test ban between the United States and the Soviet Union. For a very long time, we didn't know anything about them at all. And then in the 1990s, eventually it was possible to start building up large samples of bursts with a, a NASA mission called the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory. And this was when we started to realize that they actually split into different types one type is the long gamma ray bursts, which have been quite well studied now for about a decade. Mm -hmm. And then there are the short gamma ray bursts, which we've understood really only in the last few years. And we think from what we see from short gamma ray bursts that they appear to be very bright explosions happening in relatively distant galaxies. And the, the prime model for, for their origin is actually that they are the merger of two compact objects, most probably neutron stars, which are stars with a mass comparable to that of the Sun, but with a radius of only about 10 kilometers. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about your research, please? Yeah, sure. So my research seeks to try and understand really a bit more about what makes these short gamma ray bursts. So as I said, it's only been relatively recently we've been able to study them, and that's thanks to a satellite called SWIFT, which both detects gamma ray bursts and then slews around the sky in order to point narrow field instruments, what we call narrow field instruments, which are an X-ray telescope and an optical telescope at the position. And it does this incredibly quickly within about a minute of the burst. And that enables us to pinpoint these gamma ray bursts on the sky. Because gamma rays alone, because they're so high energy, a short wavelength, we can't actually pinpoint where they come from. So you end up, if you look at gamma rays, just pointing at a region of the sky that's quite big and saying it happened somewhere over there. And that region of the sky might contain thousands or even millions of galaxies. So it's only with these X-ray and optical observations that we can pinpoint the position of the burst on the sky, which enables us to measure its distance, or what we call its redshift, mm -hmm. and then in terms of that, its energy. And it's looking at these properties, where the bursts are and what the galaxies they're in are like, that allows you to understand what their origin is. So thank you very much, Andrew, and I hope you all the best. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And it sounds like you had a, a really good time over there. So, uh, yeah, we had quite an interesting time there. There was lots of presentations to go to and obviously a lot of people to actually interview for you, Jogcast listeners. Yeah, I think it was actually quite You, you actually found some listeners? Yeah, we found some listeners, obviously. Oh, great. I did try and get an interview with the, uh, was it the calibration scientist for the JWST telescope, but uh, she was too afraid to actually make a comment or have an interview, unfortunately. Oh, I think we might have freaked her out a little bit because we were looking up her email address in another lecture and we're on her homepage, and then realised she was sat behind us. Yeah, and then handed us some actual leaflets, pamphlets about the JWST. <laughs> and stickers. Yeah, and stickers too. They were nice stickers though. They were. So for those people who don't know, the JWST is a James Webb Space Telescope and is sort of like a successor to Hubble, but it works at slightly different frequencies or wavelengths. We got a bit angry about that. Yeah. We wanted to ask her because it doesn't actually cover much of the optical wavelength. But it has a massive folding mirror which is, oh, not the mirror itself, uh, a sort of a sun shield, yeah, which is apparently the size of a tennis court. I mean, imagine getting that up in space. Wow. wow. Yeah. Is, is it going up on the space shuttle? Yeah, it's going up on the space shuttle. It actually, what it does is it's all like compact and like mechanical, mechanised, sorry. And what it does when it's actually out in space, it takes, I think, about a month to unfold all the mirrors and the actual sun shield itself. The sun shield's deployed first so that the actual infrared uh, detector doesn't overheat to shield it from the sun, obviously. 
and then the actual mirror comes out, pops out, and you get all the actual hexagonal sort of cones which are wow. deployed. That's great news of something that will give us a brand new view of the night sky, but here to give us our usual view of the night sky, here's Ian Morrison. The May Night Sky Well, sadly, for those of us that actually like going to sleep, in order to see a dark sky in May, you have to wait up a good bit later. And I've been staying up even at the very end of April till about 11 o'clock to get a good dark sky to see, for example, Saturn and some of the other clusters. Well, when it does get dark, you'll see the constellation Gemini setting towards the southwest with its bright stars, Castor above and Pollux below. And Leo is basically holding pride of place, sorry about that, in the south with the bright star Regulus. Now, in fact, Leo looks a bit different at the moment because below it, some distance below, is in fact the planet Saturn. We'll come back to that later on. Below Gemini is the tiny constellation of Canis Minor, which has a bright star called Procyon that I quite often mix up with other things. Really, there are only two stars you can see in that particular constellation. And then over to the southeast is the constellation of Virgo. It's another region of sky where we don't really see very much uh, with our unaided eyes. There's really only one bright star there called Spica. However, as I've said several times, between Spica and the tail, in the sense of Leo the Lion, is a region we call the Realm of the Galaxies because a telescope, even a small one under dark skies, will actually pick out a large number of galaxies in that direction. They form part of what is called the Virgo Cluster, which is in fact the largest cluster in our part of the universe. Clusters themselves cluster and form superclusters, and the Virgo Cluster is at the heart of the Virgo Supercluster. Our own little local group of perhaps 50 galaxies, of which the two largest are the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies, is on the out, basically the outskirts of this supercluster. I sometimes think of superclusters as being like large conurbations. We live to the south of Manchester, and uh, Manchester, you might imagine, is the Virgo cluster. There are smaller but still quite large clusters surrounding it. In our case, these would be Oldham and Stockport and Bolton and Bury, places like that. Further out still, we have some rather upmarket little villages like Presbury, where some of the Manchester United footballers live, and you see lots of Bentleys and all sorts of cars around there. Well, that's a bit like us. We're a rather upmarket little local group of galaxies at the very edge of the Virgo supercluster. And another region of sky to look at particularly well this month, high overhead in the north is a constellation of Ursa Major, and that has also many interesting objects. If you go on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, just put night sky into Google, then in fact in the latter part it talks about some of the nice things you can see with binoculars or a telescope in the constellations I've just talked about. Well, what about the planets? Well, two of them, Mercury and Saturn, I'm going to talk about in the highlights of the month. But let's have a look at the other ones, starting first with Jupiter. Now, it's a morning object, but as it gets further and further away from the sun, in fact, by the end of the month, it's 101 degrees away, round to the west from the sun's position. It obviously rises sooner than the sun and gets to a somewhat higher elevation. 
But again, as I've said before, at this time of year, the ecliptic, which is the path that the sun and the planets sort of basically line along, is inclined relatively gently to the eastern horizon. So even at its best, when it's due south, and we shall see it there in, in a month or so, it'll still only be about 25 degrees elevation above the southern horizon. And now it's about 23 degrees above the horizon when you can see it just before dawn. So it's fairly low down, and that means that the atmosphere rather degrades our images. But even so, you'll have a chance to look at the lovely Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Callisto, and... Uh, Ganymede. So perhaps it's a time to start beginning to look at Jupiter, but of course you do have to wake up fairly early in the morning. Um, on May the 17th, Jupiter lies just below the last quarter moon in the pre-dawn sky. So again, probably it's something for later in the year when we can see it in the evening. Well, Saturn and Mercury will come too, but let's go to Mars. Now Mars is also low in the pre-dawn sky. It's beginning to rise increasingly earlier than, than the sun as the month progresses, and so becomes easier to spot. has a magnitude of about plus 1.2, so it's not all that bright yet. By the end of the month, it's about 40 degrees away from the sun, and again, because of this low angle of the ecliptic, it will still only be about 11 degrees above the horizon, and I shall come back to that in the highlight in just a few moments. Venus will also be covered in the highlight. It passed between the Earth and the Sun in March and is now visible like Mercury in the pre-dawn sky. And at the 1st of May, it will only be 12 degrees above the horizon as the Sun rises, so it will become easier to spot later in the month. It's at magnitude about 4.4, plus 4.4 at mid-month, and it's up to the right of Mars, as we shall see. Um, in the middle of May, a small telescope, if you've got one, will nicely show a crescent phase just about the same as a, a first quarter moon or just before that. Um, that magnitude of 4.4 stays pretty much constant throughout all the time we see Venus. Now, as Venus is going around the Sun, sometimes it's on the far side of the Sun. It's nearly fully illuminated, but quite small. When it's on our side of the Sun, it's much larger in angular size, but only a thin crescent is, is illuminated. Those two effects cancel out, so the actual illuminated area in angular size that we see basically stays the same, and so the brightness of Venus doesn't change by very much. Okay, well let's just finish off the northern sky with some of the highlights of the month. Well, I've mentioned Saturn, and in fact, May is probably the last good month to observe Saturn in the evening sky. It's lying below the body of Leo, some eight degrees below the star Theta Leonis, and it's really quite difficult to miss. Just find Leo and look below it. It starts the month at magnitude plus 0.8, so it's not all that bright, and this falls to about plus 0.9 uh, as the month progresses. The angular size, again, is pretty constant, but it's dropping from 18.8 arc seconds to 18.1. And as I've said before, Saturn is significantly less bright this year because the rings are very close to where John. In fact, during the middle of May, they're about four degrees from the line of sight. So you don't really see them very much. Uh, looking at Saturn with quite a large telescope just a couple of nights ago, what was very obvious was the shadow of those rings as a dark line seen across the surface of Saturn. 
One nice thing when using a telescope at the moment is because the rings are edge-on, there's far less glare from them, and it actually makes it rather easier to see some of the satellites around it. And I counted five the other night. Well, in fact, towards the end of the year, those rings will be virtually edge-on, and we wouldn't see them at all. But by that time, in fact, Saturn won't be really very visible from here. We've got to wait until about 2016 before they get at their widest again. And uh, as I said, a small telescope will easily show Titan but a somewhat larger telescope, perhaps 8 or 10 inches, can see some of the smaller satellites as well. Well, we've had a good uh, look at Mercury in, in April, had a, a good opposition. In fact, on May the 2nd, we perhaps have a last chance really to see it uh, this month, because it's coming towards what's called inferior conjunction when it passes behind the Sun. That's on May the 18th. On May the 2nd, if you can actually get somewhere where a really good low western horizon is visible, you have a chance to spot Mercury just to the left of the rather pretty Pleiades cluster, about half an hour, 40 minutes after sunset. Now, the sky is pretty bright by the, still at that time, so you'd almost certainly need binoculars to pick it up. But if it's clear and you have a good low horizon, Mercury and the Pleiades will make a very pretty sight. Its magnitude is about plus 1.1 on the 1st of May, which isn't too bad, but amazingly, in seven days, it drops to plus 2.7. just shows you how quickly things can change. Finally, on May the 21st, if you don't mind getting up too early in the morning, you have a chance to see Venus, Mars, and a very thin crescent moon in the hour before dawn. In fact, about the best time is 4.15 BST, but I suspect not many of you are up, and that's on the 21st of May. What you will actually see is Venus to the right, Mars to the left, below the thin crescent moon. But again, as I've said, the elevation above the horizon isn't very high. You'll need to have a good low eastern horizon, and I think binoculars will certainly help. So it's not a bad month, but of course as we go towards June, there's less and less time to have a dark sky to observe the heavens. Well, I'm trying now to say something for the people who listen to the Jogcast in the Southern Hemisphere, and I do have a very lovely book that I brought back from New Zealand at the turn of the year. It's called the New Zealand Astronomical Yearbook, obviously for 2009. It comes from the Stardome Observatory, and it does have some very lovely maps, one for each month, which show you what you can see. And obviously, looking to the north, you're seeing many of the uh, constellations that I've talked about. You won't see, I'm afraid, Ursa Major, but you'll see the others, but they happen to be upside down, which is just a pity. Uh, so Leo is sort of lying on its back rather than on its haunches. But if you look to the south, then, of course, you see the lovely part of the sky that we cannot see from our northern hemisphere. Well, low in the south, it's a fairly empty part of the sky, um, the constellations Tucana, for example. But there you do have the small Magellanic cloud almost due south, uh, about 9 p.m. in early May and um, a little bit later as you go on. Above that to the right is the large Magellanic cloud, and they're two of the nearby galaxies in our local group that I've talked about before. As we go through the summer and towards the autumn, then the Milky Way rises higher in the sky. And even during May, we see a lovely strip of the sky. The center of our galaxy, which is 
towards the constellation of Sagittarius is just rising in the southeast. Above that we have the constellation of Scorpius and you can't miss the very bright red star Antares which is over towards the east. Above that is Lupus and below Lupus and Centaurus which is up to the right of Lupus we have the band of the Milky Way with a most beautiful region containing Crooks, the Southern Cross, and the Vela and Carina constellations. And you have this wonderfully rich part of the Milky Way with, for example, the Eta Carina Nebula that's easily picked up by binoculars. Now, one way to find the Southern Cross are to actually use what are called the pointers. Alpha Centauri, which is one of the nearest stars to our own Earth, and also Beta Centauri. And they point up towards Crookis, the Southern Cross. There's a nice little cluster called the Jewel Box that you can see just to the lower left of the cross if you've got a small telescope. One interesting point is that I said that Alpha Centauri is one of the nearest stars, so it's actually very bright. But Beta Centauri is not as bright, perhaps a few times less bright, but in fact it's about a hundred times further away. So it's actually a very, very bright star. If you go to Beta Centauri and go up to the left to another bright star, beyond there with binoculars, you might see a little fuzzy glow. It's in fact Omega Centauri. Now, it has largely been thought to be, in fact, the most spectacular globular cluster that we have in the heavens. Um, there's another one, by the way, called 47 Takani, which is just below the small Magellanic Cloud. So you can see that almost due south and not too high in the sky. But recently, people have analysed the stars in Omega Centauri, and they don't seem to fit the basic concept of a globular cluster. These are spherical clusters that were born about the same time as our own Milky Way galaxy, maybe a million stars. And the trouble with Omega Centauri is that it's got some younger stars as well, not just old ones. And some people now believe it might be the core of what was a galaxy. The outer parts were stripped off as it sort of came close to our own Milky Way. So it may not be a globular cluster. Nevertheless, it's a lovely object in the southern sky. So I do hope you enjoy observing the heavens during May. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ian. And now it's time to move on to our feedback. So what have we been having, guys? So uh, in the Jogcast forum, we have uh, a discussion about the strange theory of light and matter, uh, quantum electrodynamics. And we'd like to thank the Earth Unit for providing the link for the lectures provided by Richard Feynman. And we all know that the lectures by Richard Feynman are very famous for being very clear, and he's a fantastic lecturer. So for everybody, if you want to go to the forum go to forum.jotcast.net. You can find the link that EarthUnit provided, and I think you'll enjoy those lectures. And for those who perhaps don't have such fast computers or high bandwidth um, internet connections, then Richard Feynman's books are also extremely good. Also on the forum, I was updating everyone while we were at GenAm, and I'd just like to apologise to Nick Johnson and EarthUnit that we don't have such an epic NAM episode as last year. I know you guys were looking forward to it, but we're splitting it over two episodes this time. It, it's a good offering for your first time, yes. 
Well, it seems that uh, everyone from Facebook has now migrated to the forums because there has been very, very little going on on Facebook at all. So um, if you are one of our 432 Facebook members, do post to Facebook and let us know that you're still listening. And emails. We have lots of emails. Um, we would like to thank Andrew Hobson, Rosanella Di Costanzo, Randy Green, Andrea Ashworth, and Andrew Tisek. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Thank you all very much for sending us your emails. And finally, we have Twitter. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter in response to the suggestion of a Jodcast Live event at Jodrell sometime in June. So th- this was a, a, a rather crazy idea we had the other day, that we could have a Jodcast meetup combined with a live recording of a Jodcast. And we thought maybe Jodcast listeners could come to Jodrell Bank and have a, a tour around the observatory, and then we could record an episode of the Jodcast. So is that something that people can express their interest already? Yes, of course, as Megan just said, they can tell us on Twitter, they can tell us in the forum or on Facebook, or even send us an email via the website if you're interested. We haven't yet confirmed any date, because we'd like to get a date when as many of um, the Jodcast presenters can be there as possible. So when, once we have a date confirmed, we'll let people know. So thank you to all our followers on Twitter. And that brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end, I'm afraid. But it just remains for me to thank Andrew Levan, Yuri Van Leeuwen, René Oudmeyer, Andy Fabian, Chris Ben, Jane Greaves, and Linda Tacconi. This month's intro and outro was provided by Roy Smits for his last show, and also we got to hear Nick, which was very good. So, thank you very much, Nick. With that, we will see you in the middle of the month, and until then, jod on. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Professor Obey has taught you well, but mark my words, one day I will strike back. I'm so happy to see him leave. Such a nasty man. Are you okay, Princess? Of course I'm okay. And if anybody calls me a princess one more time... Say, you do have pretty eyes, though. What do you mean, you're my sister?